Namaskar and thank you very much. I'm delighted to be here and grateful to Vikram for inviting me on behalf of IGNCA and Bharti Vidya Bhavan for hosting. I think we have a good common uh, goals and visions and therefore these organizations are wonderful partners for what I'm going to tell you. You know, uh, I'll start with an anecdote to make the point of my talk. Uh, about the year 2000, I received a grant proposal from IIT Kharagpur that they were going to celebrate the 50th anniversary within a year or two and they wanted uh, funding for conferences on many topics. So I asked them to send me the list and one of the topics was mind sciences. That was very fascinating because I do a lot of work and in fact I concluded that the way to teach Hindu ideas is not religion because then there's mental blocks and so on but psychology, mind science because it is a mind science. It's about who we are, nature of the self, the whole Yoga Sutra is a mind science, all the Tantras, all the meditations, they are mind science. And now, now they are being accepted like that, but in those days it was not. So I asked them to send me the uh, agenda, the details about mind science, and then I could decide. And what they sent me was filled with speakers and topics that were 100% Western. Everything was, you know, Freud or Jung or behaviorism and this ism and that ism was based on Western ideas of mind. And it bothered me, so I wrote back saying that uh, if you are willing to do at least one panel on Indian models of mind science, then you know I could sponsor that entire conference. And I got back a very sort of uh, uh, talking down at me letter, uh, which I still keep, you know, which says, "Sir, we are scientists. We are not uh, Hindu chauvinists. We are not saffron. Uh, we are everything we do has to be legitimate and scientific and." It cannot be, you know, like that. So, I knew the colonized and inferiority complex of such people. So, I got hold of a bunch of my American white friends who I've been in touch with for a long time. And always I used to tell them that you got so much out of our culture and why aren't you giving back? And they used to say because in India they don't want it back. So, I contacted such people. One of them is Robert Thurman, who is the head of Tibet House and in, in, in charge of religious studies in Columbia University. He's a Buddhist and follower of the Dalai Lama, no embarrassment. So I said, you should go and give a talk on uh, Buddhist mind science. And he said, of course, Buddhism is the preeminent mind science in the West now. Everybody's, so there's no problem. Then I got hold of somebody who is a Sri Aurobindo follower and he's a psychiatrist and he's using all these Indian techniques for psychiatric therapies and I told him you should go talk and then I got somebody who's into Kundalini and I got a Cambridge professor who's translated uh, uh, Yoga Sutra of Patanjali and he practices for 20-30 years. I picked only those who are very open about having had a guru and not embarrassed of it and I gave them a lecture and said you have to go and use the Indian terms, the Sanskrit terms, you should explain your own history of how you got initiated don't hide the Indian source, you have to emphasize that and just be very clear how this is the Indian mind science, 
what are the texts, what are the practices, what are the, who are the teachers you learned it from, and then explain how you teach it in the West, and what is the method, what is the benefits people are getting. And if you're willing to do that, I'll sponsor you. So I took their abstracts and their proposals, and I sent it to IIT Kharagpur, and immediately they accepted everybody, because now it is white people, so it must be okay. No more chauvinism was there. They accepted it. They're so happy there are five guys from Western countries will come. Oh, they'll talk about Indian mind science, must be okay then. That kind of uh, inferiority complex. And these people got such standing ovations in, in this conference. Then many other places in India wanted to invite them. So there's deep hidden pride, but embarrassment public. This is the Indian complex. So I told them, wherever you are getting invited, accept it, we will sponsor you. And so for many years, we kept sponsoring, and we created a whole discipline called Indian Mind Sciences, Indian Psychology, as a result of these people. And then we phased them out, and Indian faculty, Indian researchers took over that space. And so the reason I'm giving you this example is to show you that the Indians, Indians had a big problem with the idea of Indian contributions to Mind Sciences, but the West was appropriating it. They were very happy, relaxed about it. And I found this prevalent in so many fields. So many fields I found this. Uh, I've been in the US for 45 years almost now. And uh, I've done a survey of yoga centers. Like I would say except for 2 or 3% that are owned by Indians, which is just recent trend. Most are owned by you know white Americans, Judaic Christian people. And most of the students who go are also Westerners. So Indians kind of abandoned because they had gone there to make money and become westernized, you see. So I remember a talk I gave in Houston in the 90s where I told them that uh, this yoga is becoming very big and instead of Indians opening up gas stations and convenience stores and motels, you should also invest in yoga as a, fee, as a business because it's going to be a thriving business. And they thought I'm some old-fashioned guy and all that. Same person. Two months ago, I was in Houston. I reminded him of this, uh, Durga Agarwal, and he remembered. He said, in my house, you said all these things. I said, yes, and at that, that time, you people made fun of it. And now, you're all, you missed the boat. So the Indians keep missing the boat concerning our own tradition. So I have uh, uh, started writing on this quite a lot. Uh, and I came up with a theory called the U-turn theory. Uh, which is that uh, many Westerners first come and with great respect study an Indian idea, they practice it, they might even get initiated. Then they gradually, the ego says, hey, it's mine, why do I need this baggage of Indian, Hindu, Buddhist baggage? So they start presenting it as their own discovery to their followers, this is stage two. Then, then there's, to become really powerful, they say this is, came from Plato, or it came from Jesus, or they give a lineage of Western original uh, sources and put themselves in that line. So they've kind of joined the parampara of great Western thinkers, putting themselves. So this is a, a way to uh, kind of remove the Indian context, introduce their own. And then some of them, when, you, when they have to face a person like me, why are you doing this, will find an excuse to trash the Indian source. The Indian source is not good enough. There is something inferior. Uh, the reason I switched is because there is something wrong in it. 
it was oppressive. It was oppressing women or Dalits or uh, it's irrational. It's mystical, but we are also rational Westerners. So we can do it better, this sort of thing. And Jung, uh, when he was teaching uh, Kundalini uh, and uh, Kundalini Yoga, Patanjali Yoga Sutras in the 1930s in uh, uh, Zurich, he was teaching summer institutes and there are, these are part of his collected works, you can find all this. He wrote that uh, yoga is unfit for Westerners because it could be dangerous. He was on the one hand appropriating it and saying that what Westerners should practice is what we Westerners have discovered, meaning that he's the discoverer who will teach the other Westerners, but they should not go directly to the source because it could be dangerous. So this kind of distortion on the one hand and appropriation on the other hand has been going on. And the final stage of the U-turn is that this distorted made in USA kind of thing gets sent back to India where everybody loves it. So Andrew Cohen who done this U-turn, his yoga meditation in Delhi and Gurgaon very popular. You go to these big high-rise buildings, Andrew Cohen teaching you this. But actually he went to Raman Maharishi Ashram and these kind of places, learnt all these things and he rejected them. And then he invented it as his own and then he started marketing it. So Indians have a problem of made in India and the same thing made in USA, they'll buy it. So this is, uh, this is uh, a serious problem. Now, one of the projects we started in the University of Massachusetts Dartmouth where we have a center for Indic studies is to revive a Vedic method of learning, which is a kind of oral tradition. And uh, it turns out that in the 50s, a man called Lozanov, who was in the former Soviet bloc, he was sent by the Soviet Union to find out, to do some research on yogis and Indian mystics, find out what kind of uh, higher powers they had because the Soviets thought there might be military application. Maybe, maybe they can fly or something, you know, maybe you can do some, you can imagine where are the missiles of the other's enemy, you can imagine it or some, some they had some ideas. And CIA, by the way, also did some experiments like that to try and uh, see if yogic powers could be used for military applications. Soviets and CIA both doing it. They've written about it now. So Lozanov, came back and said that he did, didn't find military applications, but what he was a neuroscientist. What he found was extraordinary memory, that these people could learn tens of thousands of verses and they could just keep chanting very accurately. And according to him, neuroscience did not consider this possible. So much human memory was not possible, according to neuroscience at the time. So they kept sending him back to understand how such a lot of memory can be achieved. And uh, he came back and developed some methods which he then started teaching. And he said that, uh, you know, in the traditional Indian schools, when they teach mathematics, you sing the tables. You sing the tables like two times three is six, like that. They sing a certain beat, rhythm to it. And I was taught in one of these so supposedly modern Western schools in Delhi. And when I used to visit our village in Dudhyana, my grandfather was principal of a traditional school. He was a math teacher. So sometimes I would go to their class and I would see that uh, these students are sitting on the floor and they are singing the tables. 
and I would wonder why are they singing the tables and nobody could tell me the reason and I thought this is some kind of silly inferior idea they have you know, we are we don't need to sing the tables now what Lozanov discovered is that knowledge which is taught in a musical way is better encoded because you use both the left brain and the right brain simultaneously the musical brain is one part and the intellectual knowledge factual knowledge is the other part and the, the use of imagery art drama theater dance which in which brings which kind of is remembered by your imaginative part artistic part also conveying knowledge philosophy facts so when you dance the music or when you sing the mathematics tables you're using the left brain right brain both brains and so he discovered as a neuroscientist that this is a secret to memory associative memory this is a way to you can associate it with things so this became a very big movement and Lozanov some years ago he was in his 90s I don't know if he's still alive but uh, Lozanov then uh, when the Cold War ended and all, UNESCO, UNESCO sent him to continue doing this research in India. And he wrote some books on how to develop brilliant children, how to, uh, he, he, call, he called it accelerated learning. So a whole movement started in the US uh, and parents send their kids to special schools for accelerated learning, which means in three, four months you can learn what normally would take a year using these kind of methods. And it's basically multimedia, that you should have tactile, you should have visual, you should hear, you should have all your senses kind of involved, or as many senses as possible involved in learning, and then you retain it better. It's very interesting. It's a very Indian method of, you know, uh, storytelling, enactment, like that. And in the West, it was not like that. It was memory, learning was just an intellectual kind of process. So these accelerated learning things started and now the accelerated learning movement is very big because parents want their kids to be very smart and they do not remember anything to do with India and the people who are leaders do acknowledge that their mentor is Lozanov, this man. So I, when all these schools trace their uh, origin to some great thinker, great pedagogy person, and that person was a student of Lozanov, then I connected Lozanov where he got it from to fill the gaps. So we went to the education authorities in Massachusetts State and we presented that we can teach students to graduate school, which takes 10, 12 years from kindergarten to 12. We can teach them to do it in seven years. And so we threw a challenge that we will get a batch of students and we will put them through our method of learning and you watch it and you monitor them every year and you produce a report and then if we are successful in producing in meeting the standards of the state education faster than uh, you, uh, you you normally do then this would become a method of education so in the state of Massachusetts this experiment is going on and the first one or two batches have graduated successfully and these are not Students who came in very bright, they came as very ordinary students. Some of them were dropouts, some of them came from poor homes, some of them were refugees, some of them did not even know English, they were immigrants. And this system has been very successful. So now, the interesting thing is, in India we've forgotten this and we're trying to bring Western method of learning. See, And they are using this method of learning. So 
this, this is also, it is also interesting that what we now call liberal arts in the US is what places like Nalanda taught and Takshashila taught, which is not a very narrow technology only or narrow medicine only. I mean, the person who knew medicine, who knew psychology, and he knew all kind of other things, you know, he was very all-rounder. Teaching all-rounders, training all-rounders, because you exercise all parts of your brain. So it was not uncommon that the person who knew a lot about Mahabharati also knew something else, you know, very, you know. So for us, it would seem like, why are they not specialized? But there, it was a different idea. So the West is going into that. And they have a difficulty because they're, they're so compartmentalized that they have to do an artificial synthesis of things that have become compartmentalized. Like Western dance got nothing to do with Western philosophy. And uh, Western philosophy got nothing to do with Western medicine. But here, these things are not separable. They are already... So in my book, Being Different, which we have available outside, I've shown what I call integral unity, which means the unity is already there. Contrast with the West, synthetic unity, which means it is not already unified, it is artificially, you have to force it to be unified. So that is a big difference between one kind of education and the other kind of education. So we are taking the integrally unified civilization of India, breaking it into fragments, bringing in new models of education, thinking we are becoming more advanced, and then we are fragmenting. British started this by wanting, they had to train uh, babus who were one-dimensional, who couldn't think for themselves. So a lot of Indians, I find, are not able to think for themselves. They're, not, they're even afraid. So they're very narrowly, and this is more true in the metros. I find a villager is more capable to figure things out. Yeah, A lot of uh, intuition and common sense more in the villages. And here it is more mechanized. The people have, the young people in the big cities become more mechanized. They can just uh, memorize something and put it out in the exam without being able to think much. So humanities, higher education, being kind of colonized now in a very frantic rate, frantic rate by Western invasion, is kind of, is a problem I see. While the latest trends, the people at the cutting edge in those countries are introducing meditation as part of the curriculum, yoga as part of the curriculum, imagery, creative thinking, whatnot, dual brain, you know. In our case, it's not just we don't have dual brain, but it is often no brain, kind of, just just brainless, just keep, you know, uh, producing these people. I also have a very uh, provocative uh, position on uh, uh, the future of literacy. We are frantically uh, chasing an old model which says that education means literacy. But we had the oral tradition. And in the oral tradition, the guru would sit and say, I'm not reading from notes, you don't look, do notes, I'll teach, you pay attention. I'm teaching you how to pay attention to me. So it is like dance is taught like that today. Music is taught like that. You don't learn music by reading some scores like in the West. You listen, you train your ear, and then you replicate that, what you learned, and then you become better and better. So dance is taught like that. You don't read a book and learn. Uh, so cooking, the... Indian chef doesn't have a written recipe book. In the West it is, you know, take so many grams of this and turn it to 35 degrees for three minutes. And then take, you know, 
the Indian guy just takes a pinch of this and this, that, and he has an estimate and he figures it out. And this uh, quality requires a human embodied, what I have coined the term embodied knowing, which is lacking in the other tradition, which is more mechanical, like a robot could do that, what they are doing. So this embodied knowing, integral unity, system of education is being destroyed and a whole civilization being wiped out while this is at the cutting edge of Western uh, educational models, Western uh, models of neuroscience, cognitive science. So they're bringing in our, all the things that they're learning from us, repackaging it as their own, giving it some artificial history. For instance, if you go to the state of Massachusetts medical system, they have a, they've introduced a new course called uh, holistic medicine, holistic medicine, mind-body medicine, that kind of a thing, which is all from India. All this meditation, Ayurveda, herbal, is all Indian influence in recent years, last 30 years. But if you take uh, as an elective, you can take, you can specialize when you're specializing in uh, to be a doctor, you can take uh, alternate medicine, this holistic medicine as your specialty now. And one of the courses you take is the history of holistic medicine. So I read through their syllabus. In the history of holistic medicine, all the discoverers and originals are Americans in the last 30 years. They discovered it all. There's not one Indian, no source mentioned. The whole thing is a history. They've turned it into their discovery. And the interesting thing is now we'll have in the new governments and old governments this huge Harvard coming, Yale coming, this university coming, setting up, setting up, setting up. This Americanized idea of history, Americanized idea of education, our own knowledge repackaged coming back here. This is a very serious problem. Very big, big crisis that nobody knows. I don't think our new government even know these problems because they've made a few appointments where they've taken such people, I call them digesters, they are digesting our tradition turning it into their own and what doesn't fit they excrete it yeah yeah caste dowry sati you know all these bad things cows snakes all these dirty things we don't want it this kind of a we're going to take this cleanse up thing and this ours so they're taking that uh, and, and this uh, these kind of people I keep track of I write books on them I argue with them and it really hurts me when our government goes and give them Padam Shiri or give them award, appoint them and so on. So one of the recent, uh, one of the other examples I give you is uh, computational linguistics uses, computational linguistics is the, is the latest, one of the current uh, big fields in computer science. And computational linguistics is the field whereby natural languages are going to be translated from Say, if somebody is speaking in Korean and the other guy wants to hear it in Russian and when the guy speaks in Russian, I want to hear it in Korean in real time or any language X to Y people talking, uh, this instant translation, the, uh, may I please finish? I know you're very smart, but may I please finish, please? I, I know, I know that. I know. I'm getting to that point, yeah? So this, uh, I'd lose my train of so this instant uh, translation is being done with Panini's grammar, Panini's grammar. 
because Panini's grammar has the structure such that you take X language, map it to the Paninian structure, then you map out it to the other language and back and forth. A lot of people are doing it. It's not Microsoft. Google also introduces A lot of people doing it. But they're doing rudimentary. It's going to get more sophisticated, more sophisticated. The point is that this, the copyrights, the trademarks, the intellectual property of doing it is going to be owned by these companies and a huge industry is not only for telecom because people of different countries will be able to speak to each other without having to know English, but also television. When somebody is giving the news, it will be it will be in your language. So, and publishing, you can publish it in one your book and they'll translate it. So this automatic natural language processing is Sanskrit. But what they're doing, what they're doing is distorting Panini's language to fit the computer. Because you know, the alphabet in Sanskrit has more than the 26 English alphabet. So you are taking a very, you are taking all kind of sounds with emphasis, with intonation. You know, like there's, some of them you don't, you can't reproduce in English. Like r, r sound, you don't have. So you can either have r or d, but you can't have r. And, and r also. So like that. So. Also, the intonation, which is very important in our uh, idea, in our idea of chanting mantra and all that, is being removed to make it easier for Westerners to understand it. So we are trying. Uh, our Sanskrit scholars are being funded to go and finish this, dish it out to them, yeah. So that uh, because we have a complex, rather than saying, "Listen, I can't translate it. I can't get it out." Now you can't speak. That's a different problem. But is will not become r or d. Our people don't have that courage. So we are constantly getting digested into somebody else's framework because they have money, they are more progressive in our opinion, they're superior. So that's the problem. Not only we're losing the intellectual property rights, but we are also getting digested and distorted in the process. That is a very serious problem. Now, uh, 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 one of the big uh, issues I'm working on correct currently is that uh, Sanskrit itself is being hijacked because Sanskrit studies we have downsized in India we haven't really given it much importance the West is uh, has taken over the control of Sanskrit studies so they are defining history of Sanskrit you know interpretation of Sanskrit texts all kinds of things and so, for instance, in uh, U.S., there is a Sheldon Pollock. He's a very prominent professor, and I'm writing a huge critique of him. He's very famous in India. He got the Padam Sharif from the UPA government, and he has a whole army of people he's funding in different academies, different scholars, people like that, who are uh, dishing out all kind of data that he needs. So when he writes a book, it's full of data. You get so impressed, so much data that he got from all kinds of places. And you'll be so impressed that he's producing it, and you'll thank him for it. You'll People lift him up as his devata, uh, and especially he can chant some mantras, and he comes in a dhoti with a tilak, and he does all these things, so people are very impressed. But the fact is that his history of Sanskrit is a distorted history. It is not good for us at all. And his, his interpretation of Ramayana, he totally negates the oral tradition. No value for him. The Paramarthika Vyavarika idea. Paramarthika is the use of 
Sanskrit, language, philosophy, etc., to reach the transcendental realm. And Vyavarika is the use for daily living. And in our uh, tradition, these are interconnected. Like dance is Vivarika, but it takes you to a transcendental realm. Like uh, Kavya, like you enjoy theater, and it gives you the rasa, which can be take you to Brahman. So he's very critical of the Paramatika realm. He wants to remove the oral tradition, remove the Paramatika realm, uh, reinterpret the, uh, the relationship between Sanskrit and vernaculars. He's done a lot of work on Kannada. He worked with very leftist type people like Anant Murthy and uh, Girish Karnad and people like that. Uh, so they supply the left-wing ideology. So he's got this whole theory that Sanskrit is a very oppressive language. It's a language of bias and prejudice. Now the reason I'm telling you this is that very powerful people are helping him in India. So the Murthy Classics Library has Sheldon Pollock as the editor-in-chief. And so who are the editorial board? All Westerners. It's not their mother tongue. None of the languages is their mother tongue. So it's one thing to translate with reading a dictionary and all, without having the nuance and, and having the embodied feel of that language in your life as your mother tongue. And you're not invested in its future, it's just a job. And your ideology is different. So he, for instance, writes that Sanskrit is imported into India by Aryans. It's not an Indian language. That's one of his ideas. That, too, that alone would disqualify him if I were looking for someone. It doesn't matter how much knowledge he has and what he's written, if he doesn't even have this idea, this much respect. But then, so Murthy Classics Library, they funded him millions of dollars. And Sonia Gandhi's government gave, you know, Padam Shri. And I got really excited and involved and very concerned uh, last summer when I heard that uh, the Shingeri Mutt are thinking of setting up Adi Shankara Shingeri Mutt chairs in US under his leadership. So he will take his students trained by him and he gets these very extreme left-wing students. So he'll take these students and give them these chairs. So you will have basically the Shingeri Pitam will be hijacked. So this is hijacking the Shingeri Pitam in essence. So I went and talked to the Shankaracharya. And I found out to my surprise that he did not know of my issues. I tried to send many letters and emails. They'd all been uh, filtered. They'd all been uh, tracked. Somebody had captured them along the way in his organization and diverted them. Each time I would write a letter to the Shankaracharya, this person, who's very senior in the Shankaracharya Mutt, would intercept and send it back to Sheldon Pollock's team. So they would call me and say, oh, we already know your letter. Yeah, yeah. So it's like hijacking. It's literally kind of infiltrated. So when I went, I was able to get an appointment with him, finally, because somebody in Chicago knows Shankaracharya. Their father used to work there, and so they have a personal connection. And they said, we will get you an appointment without anybody else knowing that you're coming, because nobody will interfere. So I went there, and uh, T.S. Mohanji was sitting somewhere here. He took me there and few other people. And it's very interesting, when we arrived, uh, this person who was, the, who was intercepting was sitting there. He already knew that I'm coming. <laughs> but very quietly he sat. He didn't interrupt my conversation. And so I told the Shankaracharya, this is the issues, these are the distortions, and it will create a very big scandal 
for the mutt if this happens because there's people who are very concerned. The mutt is the keeper of our tradition. And we have to do Purva Paksh on such a man. We have to do Purva Paksh, which means we have to study what this guy writes. That is the Shankara tradition. You must study the other side. And nobody in the Mutt has done this Purva Paksh. So we should do that Purva Paksh. So he was sympathetic. He gave a sympathetic hearing. But he didn't commit either way, which is fine. And now we'll, we'll see whether where they go. But Pollock has got a huge parampara of people all over India who are on their, on being paid by him for a long time. So he's got loyalty. So these people lobby for him also. And he's got uh, very left-wing uh, Indian journalists whom he has trained in the US. They come, they learn enough Sanskrit to kind of pretend like they know. And then they're sent back. So this is an example of the kind of battle I fight. Uh, that on the one hand, our tradition we are getting less and less interested in. On the other hand, many things are being taken. And then these things come back with somebody else's interpretation. And we are very happy. We, in fact, thank him. You know, oh, you're touching us all. One of the arguments I hear from people who are um, Indians, wealthy people, raising funds for such shares. Raising funds, taking our money and giving it to such people. These, oh, but you know, we should be thanking them because they're doing this for us. Then that way we should be thanking the British because they were learning our kind of things when they were here. We should. We should be thanking, you know, Max Miller. We should be thanking uh, uh, Robert D. Nobili. We should thank all those guys because they came here so far, sir. They came here. They're wearing sandals. They're putting up with the heat and the mosquitoes, and they, we should thank them. All the evangelists, we should thank them and say, you know, you are coming so far and trying to help our people. So I think we got very serious complexes. And the strange thing is that I keep talking about this, keep pumping out material, writing here and there, but not... Uh, and individually, I have a huge number of followers, especially young ones in universities and so on. But the people in power are not very plugged in or interested. Whether it's government, old government, new government, doesn't matter. Whether it is corporate India, they are not putting their money into this. And I'll close with a... Uh, uh, another kind of a thing, sad situation, then I'll throw it open for questions. Uh, about 15 years ago, we were still giving huge grants. My foundation was to you know, various universities in the US because at that time we had a lot of money. You know, we don't have that same funding now. But we had this and I was learning and I thought, I went through this phase of naivete thinking I'll give grants to scholars and they'll produce this kind of work, but I realize I have to do it myself because they're not going to do this. They cannot do it. They don't have the imagination, the creativity, the articulation, and some of them are scared, some of them have vested interests, so they're not going to do it. So I started doing it myself. But that was later. During that time, when I was still giving grants, I was very highly sought after by all these universities. We were funding the Indology Roundtable at Harvard and we were funding various projects in Colombia and all kind of big universities. So one of these Ivy Leagues, when I was being you know, treated like some important guy because you know, we could get some more money out of him, and I could understand the game. You know? So they took me to the, they took the librarian of the archives section, said that I want to take you to a very special archive we have concerning India. So he took me to the basement. And there was a room about this size, filled with maybe 100, 200 crates. He said, these are 
manuscripts of India, we haven't even opened them. They've been sitting here 20 years, you give us money, we can open them, catalog them, and make them available, but we don't have the funding, you give us the money. So I wanted to know how they came to the US. What happened is, in the 50s and 60s, India had a lot of starvation, a lot of malnutrition, food shortage. And so Lyndon Johnson gave aid to wheat to India. Lyndon Johnson was the president before that vice president. And in this aid program, India could buy food for rupees. It was called PL480. There was a program called PL480 where US agreed that instead of taking hard currency, they would take rupees and uh, India would be able to buy the grain. So over a period of time, by some accounts, like more than 20% of the whole rupee supply worldwide was in American hands. Because selling grain at whatever the world price was, they were sucking in all the rupees from India and you know, Indian government had no choice. So then the concern was that it makes India vulnerable, that somebody else owns all these rupees. And it also, from their point of view, that what do they do with these rupees? So a decision was made by two countries that US can use these rupees for intellectual work in India, sending scholars, buying material. India didn't realize that you're selling your heritage. And this is when even it was not illegal to take away old carvings, old carvings from temples here and there you could take in those days. This is before it became illegal. There was no ban on ivory in those times, there was no ban on uh, tiger skins, these came later, and manuscripts and all that. So what he told me is that this PL480 money, US set up grants to people like Ford Foundation, a lot of these people, they, you know, anyone who was an American in those days for a long time, uh, they could, until recently when the PL480 money ran out, uh, they could, you could just apply for to any of these agencies in the US and anybody American could go get a lot of money and he could buy things, he could have a good time, he could hire a lot of scholars. So they were really buying up our heritage cheap because we had to buy food from them and give them rupees. So the, he told me very honestly, he said this is all PL480 money. Our university said we will take some archive, maybe they'll be useful one day. So many shiploads of these archives came and they even the crate we had not opened. Now what an insult. Now the Narayan Murthy of the world should be spending the money to get that back. They should get it back and create jobs here to open it, scan it, catalog it, tell us what is in this, what is going on here, you know. So, because some of those are rare materials. So you see the, uh, uh, the problems have been going on of this sort for a long time. And, you know, people could say this government is no good. When you get rid of them, that way they'll solve it. Others will solve it. I don't see any such solution around the horizon. I don't see even awareness. I don't see concerns of this particular kind of issue. I, uh, uh, in Harvard, I was there for one of these uh, Indology roundtables that we were sponsoring. And the gentleman who, I was giving this kind of talk only. You know, I was always been talking like this, right on their face. So this person said, Do you, have you seen such and such a rare manuscript on botany from India? I said, show it to me. So he took me to this place where you needed special permission. They would not let me, they would not let us scan because they said it will destroy the paper. It's very fragile, very old paper, sometime in the 1600s. Uh, this was in uh, Danish, I think, or 
Dutch, I think, one of those languages. Uh, I think it was Danish. Uh, this is a manuscript on, it is considered the oldest uh, manuscript on modern botany, plants, science of plants. And this is written in that European language. It's very interesting when they're describing a plant, normally you'll find a painting of that leaf or something. But they took an actual cutting of that leaf and stuck it there. Or flower, they have actual flower. Of course, it's dried now. So it was very beautiful at one time, very multicolor, beautiful, handwritten, before printing and all that. Very early. So I looked into it. So the head of this East India Company, not British East India Company, not French East India Company, there was also Dutch East India Company, and then there was before that a Danish East India Company, one of those East India Company's head. Because they were trading in herbal medicine, these medicinal plants, but we are called spice trade, as if they are trading in some uh, uh, black pepper or uh, you know something like that. What they call spice trade, we wrong translation. These are herbal, herbal things, herbs. So the this guy who was a director had a huge herbal farm in his home in the in the in Europe, and he his brother-in-law was a scientist, and he'd hired him to. Uh, visit India, come back, catalog all the plants, what they do, learn from the Indians so he could have the knowledge. And this person started what became known as taxonomy, the classification of plants. So the whole field of taxonomy and the earliest books on the properties of the botanical properties of plants are in this book. And the most interesting thing is on page one. We took a person who knew that language to just tell us. Page one in that book and I, I want to get a scan of that somehow. Page one of that book says that this book is a translation of such and such book in Malayali. It's a Malayali text. This is a Malayali book, which is the translated, and that's the origin of uh, botany. So much of this was done that we don't know. We have no idea. When this gets come back here, we're going to pay patents, and we're going to pay royalty, and we're going to do all this. So this has been going on for a long time, and our people, the difference is that at that time, Westerners were doing it, now Indians are involved in this business. It's kind of a, in, and it's considered very prestigious, it's considered a mark of pride that I'm supplying them all this stuff, this sort of thing. So India is for sale, is what it amounts to, India is for sale. And uh, with that, I'll stop, and we have... Uh, some time and I'd love to take questions. Thank you for listening. Yeah.